Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, this morning to James chapter 1. As we consider, continue to consider this letter together and learn what God has to say to us from it. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, our God, we have nothing in which to boast. We acknowledge and recognize this morning our utter helplessness. And so even now as we turn to your word, we realize that if you do not open it for us, it will remain closed. And so, God, we pray together as your people, that you would, on account of your name and your fame and your glory, that you would open your word to us in a new and a special and a transforming way just now. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. James chapter 1. Let me get there. We're going to be reading verses 19 through verse 26. This is God's word. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless." Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, it may not at first be evident to you the connection of these verses to those that have preceded it. If you haven't been with us, I'm going to give you a little bit of a reminder this morning of what we have already seen in the book of James, in this letter that's been written. It opens with that magnificent verse where James declares his humility before God and God's place over him. He declares that he is the permanent, lifelong servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he equates Jesus with God and proclaims his deity. And then he gives allusion and makes reference to his Old Testament and the connections there to God's people in the Old Testament. And so he uses the language of the 12 tribes and those Israelites, those Jews that have now been dispersed. This is language so as to help God's people, these Jews to whom he is writing that have been oppressed and persecuted, that face all of these various trials and temptations, that they would know that they are God's people and that he has not forgotten them and that he is walking with them, that just as he was with his people in the Old Testament, they, that he is continuing to be with his people now. And so it opens with that remarkable uh, verse to this letter. But then he moves into 
if you will, the content of his letter. And he begins by proclaiming that in all of the sufferings and tribulations and trials and temptations of life, the people of God are to count them as joy. And that is a, an interesting and, and a peculiar and a very difficult reality for us to face and acknowledge. That, it, that in the midst of life's deepest valleys and of its most intense sorrows, the calling of the scriptures for God's people is that we would count it all joy. That, that we would find joy and satisfaction, not necessarily in the trial, but in having a perspective about the trial that sees God working through the trial. So, so, that, so that trials and temptations and sufferings and sorrows and deep, dark valleys become the proving ground and the testing ground of our faith and our deliverance, of our salvation, so that God is using them in some mysterious way according to his eternal purposes and providence to bring about our perfection. And friends, with that sort of mindset, one can, one can face trials a bit better and can certainly find joy at least in what God is doing with them. And so then he closes that, that the section that we looked at last time, which is verses 2 to 18, by telling us not to be deceived and then reminding us that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Look at verses 16, 17, and 18 with me. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, speaking to Christians, to the church. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he's, he's articulating then at the end of this section about suffering and trials and temptation and how we are to have a perspective that allows us to find joy in them. He's articulating great truths of the gospel, that it is by the power and working of God that we have been born again unto righteousness, that we've been recreated in Christ Jesus, that we've been given this new perspective, that we have been made new in Christ. And it is of his will that he brought us forth. It was by the word of truth, his word that he brought us forth. And we are to be the first fruits of his creatures. The problem then is that then he turns in verse 19 to begin to talk about being quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger and anger not producing righteousness and putting away filthiness and rampant wickedness. And I think one of the questions for us as we read and study this together is what in the world does that have to do with what, what we've seen and what comes before it? And what I want to try to help you do, at least initially now, is to see the connection because it's not as difficult and it's not as disjointed as it at first may seem. The question I think that James is getting at as he is fleshing out a bit farther, elaborating, if you will, whether or not you have been made new. You have been brought forth by the power of God. You have been brought forth by the word of truth. Because for anybody who hears verses 2 to 18, the question then becomes, well, is that me? Right? He's just got finished speaking about, if you go back to verses 5 and following it, about those that lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously. But when we ask, we are to ask as those who have faith, not doubting, because the doubter is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed to and fro. It is a person who must not suppose that he would receive anything from the Lord, because what? He is a double-minded man. So James has been talking about the reality that you can look like a Christian and you can 
have the answers that Christians might have and you can swim in the pond with other Christians and you can live in a circle of other Christians and you can be a part of a Christian fellowship and do a few Christian things, but you can really be not the man of faith that asks and receives, but you can be a doubting man who is really double-minded in his religion and in his commitment to God. You remember we talked about that. So do you see that he's been talking about these the possibility of these two realities, these two different kinds of people. And so when you get to verse 19, what's he doing? He's elaborating on which kind of person you are. He is giving us a litmus test, if you will, a measuring stick by which the, the fervor of our faith can be seen and can be measured. A, a, a temperature gauge on how hot we burn, how fervently we burn for Jesus Christ. What gospel we believe. I mean, he's answering the question, are you the single-minded man or the double-minded man? To go back to another illustration that he's already used, are you the rich man who boasts in his riches? Or are you a rich man who only finds his value and exaltation in Christ Jesus? Are you a lowly man who labors to make much of himself? Or are you a lowly man who is completely satisfied with the value that God has given you in Christ? Are you the true Christians who see trials as a means of God's grace in your life that he uses to transform and complete you to bring about your perfection? Or are you a man, a sinner, who calls himself a Christian but is really full of doubting, not trusting in Jesus to do what you cannot do, angry with God's providence, frustrated by the trials and temptations, and letting the suffering that he brings cause bitterness in your soul? Do do you see that you you can be one or the other? And he has given those illustrations, but he has not given them how it is that they can look at themselves and look at their life and look at their heart and know which they are. Friends, when I read verses 2 to 18, I desperately don't want to be the doubter. I desperately want to be the faithful one. I don't want to be double-minded in my ways. I want to ask God and receive. I want to be blessed, but find my value only in the blessings that God gives and in the value that Christ has given. I want to boast only in Christ Jesus. Because, see, for all of those things, riches and poverty, are you uh, trusting in God? Are you able to see uh, his hand at work in your trials? If I were to ask you those, those are all questions for which it's easy to give an answer. You can say one way or the other for sure. You can say, yes, I believe. No, I don't. Yes, I trust in Christ. No, I don't. No, I'm not bitter about my suffering because, yes, I trust in Christ to use those sufferings. But is it really true? And how can you know the difference? Well, James's conviction, I would argue, as you're going to see at least all the way until the end for a few chapters, James's conviction is very clear. His conviction is that your life will show you who you are. The scriptures, the gospel, and even Jesus himself agree with the conviction that James has which is that the power of God at work in us to save us is also at work in our heart and in our life to transform us. And so that the salvation that is brought by God's power to the soul and the transformation that results by the transforming power of God's working in our life, the two are inseparable for James. 
that when God brings faith and redemption into the life of a sinner, into the heart and soul of a sinner, it will necessarily bring fruit and works of righteousness in that person's life. I mean, let's, let's be real. Let's, let's notice and don't miss what James has in view as he opens these words. Yes, he begins to talk about you know, behavior and obedience, if you will, being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But look at verse 20. For the anger of man, the reason we are to avoid those things, and that those are just one example that he chooses, because those things, what? Do not produce the righteousness of God. What is the goal? Ultimately, it is that God would be working in us to bring about righteousness so that we could be reconciled and made holy, that we could be brought into a relationship with him. He continues in verse 21, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. Why? So that you may receive with meekness the implanted word, that is the word of God, which is able to save your souls. So there's this interconnection between the obedience and the behavior and the things that we do and the reality of our life the reality of who we are. And what he's saying is that you can't claim to be redeemed. You can't claim to have been made righteous, declared positionally righteous before God if you do not also have God working in your life, transforming your actions to bring about a life of holiness and righteousness. So that for James, the two are inseparable. So, 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 then, it, so then it brings us to the question, what then does true religion look like? What does true Christianity look like? What are some things that would characterize it? I mean, let's face it. He closes in verse 27 with stating this reality. What? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. So the point of what he has said in the previous verses is to help us understand what are the characteristics of true Christianity. And friends, if that's of no interest to you, I would be very concerned As far as I know, I think everyone in this room claims to be a Christian. Don't you want to know, according to the scriptures and God's holy inspired word, whether or not your Christianity is the true Christianity of the Bible? I desperately do. So that I can be found faithful. I don't want to be one of the ones that come to Jesus in that last day upon his return. To whom he looks and says, depart from me, you that work at iniquity. Because I've never known you. You have given me lip service, but your heart is far from me. Friends, we must be concerned with this question, what does true Christianity look like? So he's going to go on after proclaiming in verses 17 and 18 that we have been brought forth this work of God by the word of truth, that we would be the first fruits of his creatures, this regenerative work that God does for us in Christ. And then he's going to begin to elaborate on that work a bit more first. And we're going to move through these pretty quickly now that we're to the text. First, he tells us that true Christianity is characterized by receiving the Word of God. That may, that may seem really simple. Friends, it's something that we're losing every single day. Most Christians today, at least in our context, do not think that the Word of God and its reception is necessary if they are to be saved and grown in grace. James's view is different. That true Christianity is Christianity characterized by a deep and abiding 
longing, loving reception of God's word. Look at what he says. He does tell them to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. That is the word of God there. All of his word is law. Receive the word. Why? It is personified here. The word of God is spoken of as being able to do something. As if it is living and breathing. As the scriptures tell us, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces even to bone and marrow. It divides the soul. So that the scriptures are personified here, what? As the agent that is able to save your souls. To bring about this salvation. Yes, it is a gift of God. Yes, it is... A work of God, verses 16, 17, and 18, that it is of his will that he brings us forth. But do not miss in verse 18 that it is by the word of truth that he brings us forth. So that we must be willing to receive the word of God, to hear and to listen to the word of God, to be open and receptive to what it has to say to us. And what he is telling us is that when it comes... It does not come ineffectively. It is a gift, but it is not an impotent gift. It is not an empty gift. It is a gift that results in change of position before God, yes. But it is also a a, a gift that results in a change of mentality and perspective. It results in a change of our actions, a change of our life. The grace that God gives us in salvation is a grace that not only changes part of who we are, but it changes who we are altogether. It's not a salvation of our souls. It's a transformation of our mind and our bodies and our will and our affections. And so he picks just this one example. He picks this one example. I wish he would have picked a different one, to be quite frank with you. Look at what, slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. Why? Because these things do not produce this righteousness. God produces the righteousness. Anger does not produce righteousness. But God and his word and doing what it tells us to do, that that will produce righteousness in us. Do you see that what he's advocating is that we must receive the word in a specific way? We must receive it in such a way that it permeates all of our existence. Not just one little small aspect, not just our heart or not just our soul or not just our position before God so that, yeah, it's something, you know, I heard the word and believed the word back then and so now I've been made right with God for someday in the future, that it's a a permeating and an all-inclusive reality that we must receive it and we must continue to receive it, that it is something that is continually needed for us. And so he picks this example. Is there any area of our life, friends, Is there any, I mean, such a small, insignificant thing, but is there any area of our life where we maybe fail so miserably? Then in the way we talk, in the way we respond to other people, and in the way we listen to them. I mean, if I I just think about my own life, I mean, I believe the word of God and I, I'm trusting in Christ by faith, and I want to have a religion that is true Christianity of the Bible, 
and I, and I want to receive the word in such a way that it is having its work in me, that it's not an empty gift that God gives. Friends, when I think about the way that I speak to, to other people, the way that I talk to my wife, you know, the way that I talk to my children, the way that I listen or maybe don't to so many people that God gives me, the way that when, when people offend me and accost me and do things to me, even sinful things to me, do I respond with grace and love? No, not always. I mean, friends, maybe you're farther along this, this path than I am, but I, I suspect you're much like me. But there's probably no greater place of failure in your life than the way that you listen and speak to others and the way that we respond to them. And so he offers this summary judgment. He tells us that if these things are ever going to be changed, <laughs> when I read verse 20, 19 and 20, that the anger of, the, of man does not produce righteousness, that we, God's people who claim to be Christians, to have been brought forth by his power through the word. When I read verse 20, I'm left asking the question, how in the world do I get there? What in the world does that look like? Well, he offers the summary judgment then, doesn't he? Verse 21. If you're going to put aside wickedness, filthiness, if you're going to be given this righteousness, you are to what? Receive with meekness the implanted word of God. In other words, he is arguing that true Christianity is only Christianity characterized by the word of God coming into the life of a sinner and producing in him righteousness. Both in an eternal sense before God one day and in a sense, a temporary sense today inwardly in our heart and soul and outwardly in our life and in our actions. And friends, I would simply, as we move on to the next characteristic, but I would simply encourage you with what he's telling you here. Do you understand and have this perspective that the word of God is vital to your life and that it is a vital part of your salvation? Again, like a lot of the things he gave us in two through 18, it's easy for us to say yes to that, isn't it? When was the last time that you cracked it and read it? When was the last time that you prayed over God's word? Friends, when was the last time that you even asked God to teach it to you, to show it to you, to open it to you and you to it? Oh, God, incline my heart to your word. Friends, don't forget the encouragement of Psalm 1, for blessed is the man who loves the law of the Lord. And in it he meditates day and night. He will be like a, he will be like a tree planted by streams of living water, and in its fruit will produce, in its season it will produce its fruit. Friends, do you see the word of God and its reception in your life as this ongoing necessity? Friends, if we're going to, if we're ever going to do what he's fixing to tell us in the next part, if we're ever going to be able to have this all permeating relationship with Jesus, where it's not just something that we come in on Sunday mornings and we look like Christians here at 930 and, and maybe on Sunday nights at six o'clock and maybe if we meet for Bible study every other week and, but if we're going to have a, if we're going to have a, a religion that, that is a life that is permeated with grace, it's only going to be in so far as we receive with meekness, the implanted word of God that is able to save our souls. So it's a true Christianity that is characterized by receiving the word of God. Secondly, it is characterized by responding to the word. And this is not totally separate. Because part of how we receive it rightly is to receive the word in such a way that it is digested and it garners a right response. So that he continues in verse 22. 
Not just to sit back and with meekness receive it. Oh God, send the word. Let me just shower it on me, right? I'm just going to receive. That's not what he means. So he's going to clarify for them. But be doers of the word, he says. Don't just sit and receive it in the context of hear it. Remember the words of Jesus over and over and over again. What did he say? Those of you who have ears to hear, hear me. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. Why? Because there's a way to hear and not hear. You can hear me talking and hear nothing I've had to say. Friends, you can read the word of God and get nothing out of it because you are not really listening. You can sit in services where the the word of God is declared week in and week out, faithfully preached, the gospel held before you, and it make absolutely no difference in your life because you're not listening. You can hear and not hear. And he says, don't just sit back and listen. But take it in, digest it. What does he say? But be doers of the word, friends. Because if you only sit back and hear, you have really heard nothing and you have deceived yourself, the end of verse 22. And then he goes on to characterize this type of hearing. Look at what he says. If anyone is a hearer like this, not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. You know what a mirror's for? (laughs) It's to show you what's wrong. How many of you look in mirrors to find out how perfect you are? I mean, if you do, come talk to me afterward. <laughs> Friends, the purpose of a mirror is to, is to reveal the flaws. And if you look in a mirror and you see all the flaws that are there, and you walk away, th- and you walk away from the mirror and forget all of the flaws that you saw, and think, man, I am one sharp customer. The mirror's been of no value to you. You've looked, but you have not seen You're like a man that looks in a mirror, but he goes away at once and he forgets what he was like. But look, when we look into the word the way he is advocating, verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, that is God's law, the law of liberty, the law that frees us. Friends, the law is not binding. And perseveres, being not a hearer only who forgets, but a doer who acts who digests it, who takes it in, who acknowledges, he will be blessed in his doing. Friends, let us listen like that. If we're ever going to listen like that, and I've got some practical things to give you before we move to the third one, we must train ourselves. Reading God's word like this and hearing God's word preached like this is not natural to men. If we're going to listen and read it in a way so as to respond accordingly, we must, one, we must be given to read it and listen to it. If you're ever going to hear it, if you're ever going to know it, you must first be given to read it and listen. Now, I'm going to try to tread very lightly and gently. I'm going to try not to get on a hobby horse, but in the context of... James employing, imploring God's people to beseeching them to hear from God's word, to receive the word, personifying the word as the thing that is able to save your souls. I desperately have a concern and a question for the church and our culture today. Friends, if we had the same view of the word of God and its necessity to our salvation and to our life of holiness as a part of who we are as God's people, as a characteristic of true Christianity and something that must be continually received as God's people, would we be doing away with evening worship services? Friends, they're dying in almost every church in our context. 
they're dead. And it's not just the churches, because shame on those churches. Because all they have done is listen to the desires of men who do not want to come back and do not want to listen to the word of God preached and do not want to sit under its authority. But friends, why if the word of God is living and sharp, burning and alive, why if the word of God is able to save our souls, are we changing our lives and our schedules to sit under its teaching less? And to read it less. That's simply the question that I have for us today. Why? Typically, Christians complain about Sunday evening services taking away from their family time. And they come up with, you know, these it, family time is a God-ordained thing. And the family comes before the church does. Friends, is there not some other hobby or, or place in our life that, takes our time that we give so much of our time to from which we can rob a little bit of time to recover our family time and honor God with it. It is important. It is necessary. And if we forsake it, we will give an account for it. So, so don't misunderstand me. But friends, why oh why would the most important thing in our life, which is our reception of God's word, the time that we spend studying it, the time we spend with God's people, worshiping under its authority, listening to it preached, singing its truths, praying over it. Why is that the place that we take from to recover our family time? I just don't understand. Friends, church history doesn't agree with you. From the beginning of the Old Testament, God's people have always committed morning and evening sacrifices and worship to God's day, to the Lord's day. Because their perspective of rest was that they rested only in Him. And that if they were going to honor their family and find rest for their family, it was going to be in so much as they spent time with God. I mean... I mean, I just think about the places in my own life and in my family's life where we forsake our family and the time that God's given us. I mean, how many, how many of us and you and myself spend many more hours than maybe we should at work? We forsake our families and our relationships for our jobs because of the money it brings us. Friends, football, baseball, soccer, cricket, Whatever sport it is that, that lights your fire, hunting, fishing. And if you know, and those of you in here, you know me. I, I'm, I'm one of the, I love football as much as anybody in this room. I probably love hunting more than anybody in this room. I give more time than I ever should have in my life to chasing a stupid four-legged creature with horns. I get it. I'm there. Friends, our cell phone time, TV time, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, if you piled up the hours that we spent in technology each week, how much of it could we not recover some of that and redeem it for our families? Friends, don't misunderstand me. I'm not against any of these things. But what I know is that none of them, none of them are able to save your souls. You give your life to football. You give it to baseball. If I give it to hunting I will have a lot of trophies on my wall and I will have a darkened, hardened, dead heart because hunting is not going to save me. Twitter's not going to save me. Facebook, my phone, TV, friends, work. God-ordained work is not going to save you 
Let me read to you what will. Verse 21 of James chapter 1, friends, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word of God because it is able to save your souls. Friends, I'm simply advocating that we do not need less of God's word. According to the scriptures, we need more of it. Let us plead with God. I'm not heaping coals of guilt on you. That's not my purpose anyway. Let us plead with God to give us a love of his word and a desire to have it, and then to orchestrate our lives in such a way so as to spend as much time as we can with it, that we might receive it and respond to it accordingly. But if we're going to respond, not only must we be given, which so many people now are not, to read and listen, we must prepare before we read it or listen to it preached. We must prepare our hearts. We must read and listen intentionally. We must take note of the things that we read or the things that we hear. We must labor to actually apply them to our life. We must labor to understand the things that we have read so that we are not left in error. And we must be moved to action by the word of God or it has done absolutely nothing for us. Friends, let us recover a desire for the word. For Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Let's move on. A right response is a true characteristic of Christianity a a characteristic of true Christianity. And then thirdly and finally, and I'm going to close, our time is done. We're going to, we have something else to participate in. Not only by, not only by receiving the word and then responding to it rightly, but also by the resulting realities, the resulting realities of the word. And he, he gives them there in summary. Listen, if you are given to the word like this, if you are dependent upon the word like this, your Christianity will be, characterized by two resulting realities. Look at what they are. First, 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and he does not bridle his tongue, but he deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Friends, that's only an example that he chose to articulate that true Christianity is characterized by the result of personal holiness. See, these are inward realities. Your thoughts, your speech, your heart, Friends, if, if you claim to be religious, but, but there is no personal piety in your life, there's no personal holiness in your heart, you don't know the gospel and you've never encountered Jesus. So first, it results, one of the resulting realities is personal holiness. But second, look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So not only is it a personal holiness, it results in necessarily a public holiness and a public awareness. Personal, private holiness and a public or a corporate holiness where we acknowledge God's word and where our religion is not only at work in us, but it is at work through us on the culture around us. If you're here this morning, you've been listening to these words and maybe you've been cut to the heart by James's words, the the words of scripture this morning. Maybe you call yourself a Christian, you you profess to believe in Christ, but the simple truth is, the reality of your life is that you have never been affected like this, that your life and your actions have never been any different than what they have always been. You you have come to the realization under the conviction this morning that, you know, maybe my religion is, 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 is not real religion at all. Maybe my Christianity has never really 
than the Christianity of the Bible at all. Maybe my view of the gospel is so out of whack that it's never impacted my life at all. Friends, all I can tell you is come to Christ. Believe in him, receive his words, and he will produce a righteousness in you that, is, that, that you cannot and that for you is simply unattainable. But what I suspect is, is the case for most of us. If you're here and you're convicted because you can think back on a time in your Christian life when it was vibrant, when your zeal for God and his word burned hot, and now it's nothing but smoldering embers, and you're convicted because your life does not look much like it ought to look, Maybe it doesn't even look as good as it did a few years ago. And in fact, it gives a very poor testimony now to the reality of what God has done in your heart. Friends, my encouragement to you, Christian, is repent of your sin and be restored. Turn from a life of wickedness and be a doer of the word of God, not just a hearer. Plead with God to grow you in grace and to plant his word deep in your heart. Let's receive it and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the word that you've given us. And God, I pray very simply this morning that you would burn in us a desire to know it. That you would help us under conviction of your spirit to orchestrate our lives in such a way so as to spend as much time with it as we can. To honor it. To gather with your people to hear it. To sing it together. To pray it together. To read it together. God, to sing and pray and read it in our closets and by ourselves and with our children and around our tables. God, help us to see this morning that nothing can save us but the gospel, and it is found only in your word. And then, Father, insofar as we have read and studied your word this morning, I pray that you'd help us to receive it, that it would go deep in our hearts, that it would take deep root in the soil there, and that it would transform us from the inside. And that, God, the life that results would give testimony to the reality of the change that you've made. God, teach us to love you. Constrain us with your grace. Bind us up and give us faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.